Insole International, in conjunction with the Early Research Academics Committee, presents Insole Talks. Hello everyone, my name is Eugenia Vaccari and I'm the chairperson of the Insole Era subcommittee. Welcome to another episode of Insole Talks the podcast features conversation with some of the key insolvency figures in the world. And I'm very pleased to be here today with Professor Andrew Key, who, of course, makes no introduction. After a career in practice and academia in Australia, Andrew moved to the University of Leeds in the UK. Andrew is one of the luminaries in the area of insolvency law. He has frequently been cited by many superior courts, He has published an impressive number of books and research articles, mostly in top-ranking law journals. He also has won a series of large grants from international and domestic organizations. Andrew, you are a source of inspiration for many early career researchers from all over the world. Thanks for being here with us today. Thank you, Eugenia, for inviting me. Now, we will start with some general questions, then we will move on to questions related to your recent publications before concluding with some questions targeted to our audience of early academic researchers. My first question is, how and when did you decide to pursue your career in insolvency law and what impacted this choice? Well, when I was at law school, there was no insolvency law taught whatsoever. And so I got, got no sort of introduction to it at law school. And then when I went into practice after being admitted to the bar, I encountered it <laughs> and thought of why hadn't I been taught anything about this? And it was a liquidation which I had to do. And uh, I started to then do quite a bit of insolvency work and acted for a couple of uh, insolvency practitioners. But... At that stage, I was doing more company and tax work, and it wasn't until I left practice and went into academia for the first time when I started to include insolvency in the company law material that I was teaching. But still, it was really rather peripheral to my interests. It was really when I went to the federal court as a registrar of the federal, that's the Australian federal court, where I was also, I was given a dual uh, appointment as uh, Deputy Registrar of the Federal Court and also Deputy Registrar in Bankruptcy. And I used to sit on bankruptcy cases on a regular basis, bankruptcy examinations, make suggestions to the regulator, particularly of personal, insol- personal insolvency. And that's where really my interest was really peaked while I was at the Federal Court. And I saw its tremendous impact on the lives of people and businesses. And when I returned to academia, because I couldn't keep away, I introduced the first corporate and personal insolvency modules in Australia. And I found that there was a great deal of interest in it from students. Why, I suppose, it really impacted my choice to then really start to focus upon it as a research area as well as obviously a teaching area was that there was really very few people in the world 
actually working in the field and I saw there was a niche there and I liked the idea of perhaps being part of what I could see as a developing discipline because I, I could see it developing as a discipline, more and more people being interested and it becoming more and more important. And I saw that because a heavy recession was occurring in Australia and, and much of the Western world at that stage. So I could see the impact that insolvency would have. It also helped having the practical background. That's how I really got into looking at insolvency law. And it really was a matter of the, the things that happened to me in my career, I suppose. Thanks, Andrew. Now. What attracts you in insolvency law compared to other fields of law, if anything specific? Well, originally, as I sort of suggested in my, the answer to my, your previous question, I saw a vacuum, really, and I could see its importance in the commercial world, and, and it still has a, a tremendously large impact on commercial world in general, as most listeners will know. And I just felt that I think that I was attracted to the idea of perhaps being able to develop some new thinking, some original thinking. It also brought together a load of commercial law areas, which has interested me in ever since I was at law school. I sort of specialised in commercial law at law school and, and in practice. And I always tell my students that insolvency is the most important commercial law discipline, and that's supported by Professor Philip Wood, who's an adjunct professor at Oxford and a partner in. Allen and Overy, one of the London firms, who's essentially a finance lawyer, but he says the same thing, that insolvency is the most important commercial law discipline. And I think what, what attracts me is the fact that it involves loads of conflicts, conflicts between stakeholders, and it's trying to deal with a real problem in the real world. It's just the money won't go round. And there are economic and social issues as well as the legal ones. So all in all, there's, there's plenty of scope for debate. There's plenty of scope for broadening research into areas other than strictly legal areas. And this brings me nicely to uh, my next question. It is about what you told, but I guess it's also about your interests. So you have taught a broad range of subjects in your academic career. You mentioned commercial law, but you also taught company and insolvency matters. And recently, your research and teaching expertise has shifted to corporate governance matters. Can you tell us a bit more about your career and what brought you to take those decisions? Well, I basically sought to maintain a strong presence in both insolvency and corporate governance slash corporate law feels in the past 20 years. I've always had an interest in company law. I enjoyed it at law school. I practiced a lot in it when I was a practitioner in Australia. And obviously, it's an important aspect of corporate insolvency. And I've taught company law now for over 35 years. But I must say that I probably never did in my early days much research in the area. And it wasn't probably until the early 2000s that I, I sort of went back to it and started to doing more research in it. Partly it was because of the fact that some of my insolvency research started to impinge more and more on, on company law. I, I would argue that some of my research, sort of including my PhD, was at the intersection of company law and insolvency law. So I hadn't sort of, you know, forgotten it completely. But it really came to me, I suppose, in the late 90s, early 2000s, that some of the areas that I, 
I'd found started to find interesting were really requiring me to go more and more into the corporate governance field to sort of find answers. And I wanted to 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 look at some of these issues that I'd I'd basically had arisen in my mind. And I found this really interesting. And I found that I was able basically to continue to do my insolvency research and also corporate governance research. I've just been sort of very voracious in in doing things and sort of moving into new area like that was really challenging for me and gave me a new challenge. I think it was that challenge factor that really perhaps sort of beckoned me into the corporate governance field to to start to work in an area which was transdisciplinary. So I was starting to think a lot more about economics and management and ethics, which I thought was was good for developing my mind and also my research capabilities. Also, a contributing factor was that at Leeds, I was the director of the Centre for Business Law and Practice, and I wanted to broaden our corporate law offerings, master's level, and we took on some new staff. They were interested in corporate governance, and I wanted to assist them. So I sort of got some collaborations going with them where we started to work as a team. And being able to work with them also gave me renew or renewed my vigour, I suppose, in relation to corporate governance. And so that's where really how my interest started and how it continued. And I suppose once you start to work in a field and sort of suppose get a reputation in the field and start to produce material, it's sort of hard to move out of it again. And I've not wanted to. And I've I felt I've been able to keep the two areas at the forefront of my work, and in some ways they've, they've overlapped in, in certain places. So really they've been quite good in that respect. Thank you, Andrew. Speaking of, again, your experience, you have worked with international organizations such as the European Union. Can you tell our audience how did you manage and how can you manage to get these positions, provided that it is still possible for people like me who live in the UK? And what is it like to work for these entities? I suppose it's mainly been reputation for me. I've worked with a number and I suppose it's it's such that once you get appointed to one particular entity or organisation in one particular area, then that can often lead on to another. It's also due to the fact that I think that my research has been applied research as well as theoretical research over the years. I've tried at least to make my research something that makes sense in the real world. And I think insolvency law is one of those great areas where practice and academia is quite close. David Millman and I have both talked about this on a number of occasions, and we've agreed that, you know, it's where you find a number of practitioners start to do research, sometimes theoretical research, and you find also academics sort of working into the, the more practice areas. And then sometimes it's obviously reputation helps, but it's, it's, it's a matter of sometimes a bidding situation. And, and I know when we got at Leeds the European Commission's appointment for the writing of a report on the new approach to business failure and insolvency, which we got in 2015, that was a competitive bid and it was just really working with a good team, Jerry McCormick, Sarah Brown, were brilliant to work with. 
I think that team effort was, was really important for that. One can't always rely upon oneself. In other ways, I, I've worked with the Australian Society for Certified Practice and Accountants and the Insolvency Practitioners of Australia. And again, it's been through reputation. Obviously, people see what you're writing and they then approach you. I think in my case, it's, it's been helpful to have the practice background as well, both in practice uh, as a, pra- a private practitioner, but also as a, as a federal court registrar, which was really helpful. And working on some of these things have been a real challenge. Uh, for example, the European Commission work was a real challenge. It was extremely demanding. There was a lot of people that we were also involving from all around Europe. And the, the European Commission was demanding, but we expected them to be. They were putting a lot of money into it. So that meant meetings in Brussels, which obviously was time consuming, but also very interesting to meet with with those colleagues in the European Commission and get their views on what we were doing and get their feedback. But often it's, it really is a matter of sometimes being in the right place at the right time and taking up the opportunity that maybe is presented. And sometimes these opportunities may not look all that great or as if they'll lead on to anything, but sometimes they can really lead on to something really important. And I would encourage people that to look at these opportunities, even if they may not lead into the research assessment framework we have in the UK, where your research is is looked at every six or seven years. But these opportunities can lead to, to, you know, ref publications, but they can lead to great opportunities, which is really something that, um, you know, I know when I was approached by the Australian Society of Practicing Accountants, I thought, well, am I going to do this to be involved in giving them advice and working on their, their courses? And I thought, well, I don't know whether I want to take the time out. But I'm glad I did because it, it led on to other things. So you just never know. Yeah, exactly. And I'm sure that all our listeners from different jurisdictions will have uh, the equivalent of our ref. So <laughs> we clearly know what, what you're speaking about. In your view... What are the main purposes of insolvency law? Whose interests should it serve? Do you think that the purposes or interests have changed over time, or do you think that they should change? These are really deep issues, and they're hard questions. Uh, it's easy to respond in a glib way, but that's, that's lacking respect for the issues because the issues are serious ones. I mean, I think there are many purposes for the existence of insolvency law. I mean, I start with when I teach insolvency law to my master's students with the sort of glib statement that insolvency law is all about the debt problem, which, which it is, obviously. But it's more complicated than that. I think, first of all, the main purposes are, first of all, to, to provide an orderly process to resolve the debt problem, to stop conflicts and to stop the implementation of the grab rule, that is creditors grabbing what they can and some creditors lose out. Secondly, I think there's a, a purpose in insolvency law is to make sure there's a sharing in loss, the collective system, that everybody loses out, unfortunately, but they lose out to the same degree. Then there's, I think, a need for a predictable, transparent and affordable system to deal with this debt problem. Also, provide for a timely and efficient resolution of insolvencies 
And finally, if I limit myself to these main purposes, the need for investigation, that is to investigate the affairs of a company or, or a bankrupt. This is necessary for retaining commercial morality and public confidence in the commercial system. The problem with insolvency is no one's a winner apart from the, the lawyers and office holders. So one's looking at mitigating the damage. So who suffers the most? Now, of, of course, the creditor's bargain theory, which most listeners I'm sure will be familiar with, says it's all about the creditors and you must maximize creditor interest. And I suppose when I was in practice, that was what I would have probably endorsed. I acted for a lot of creditors, various types of creditors from banks down to ordinary tradespeople, ordinary small businesses. And I probably would have said, yeah, it's, it's, it's all about serving the interests of the creditors. But as I've got older and hopefully more wise, I realized that it's far more than that. And you come then to the communitarian theory that says that, well, when you are making decisions, you, you should be serving all stakeholders, not just the creditors. And that causes or needs one to make uh, a balancing of the interests of, of the stakeholders. And so you've got those two big theories, if you like, the creditor theory and the stakeholder theory, and they're sort of pulling against each other. And I think you see elements of both in most legislation around the world. I think that it's very hard to come down on one or the other. I like the idea of balancing in many ways, although one bankruptcy appellate judge in the US, Barry Shermer, says that judges can't do it. But judges tend to do it, and I think that, that they've really got to do it. I think that what my view has been, certainly in relation to my early views on it was that there should be a balancing of the interests of the people involved in the insolvency problem. The problem is how do you balance those against one another? It's not very easy. You can see the court sometimes grappling with this, particularly in personal insolvency, where they're looking at a, a bankrupt who's got a family and are they going to take the home away from the, the bankrupt or are they going to leave it there for the family? So you've got that, that issue. It's far from easy to, to give you an answer to your question. Those are obviously the theories. I think that we are finding more and more embracing of more of a stakeholder approach. And I think that that probably meets with the, the views of most people. I think that that's what most people would like to see. Thank you. And I think that's Speaking of that balance, I think that the way you reach that balance, and, uh, it shifts also depending on, I mean, the period of time and the economic period in which we're living in. So it might well be that actually this balance is found more in favor of stakeholders or creditors, depending on the point of time in history. Next question. To what extent has insolvency law changed since you start working and doing research in the area? Oh, amazingly, it really has. And I suppose that goes with, given my age, probably one could say that with most areas of law, certainly commercial law. But I think solvency law has probably changed more than most. 
as I've sort of adverted to already, when I started working in the field, it, it wasn't regarded as a distinct part of law. At law school and business schools, it got tag- tagged onto the end of a company law course or part of a commercial law module. And no one was really an expert in it, certainly as far as academia went, certainly not in Australia. And no lawyers referred to themselves as insolvency lawyers. They were commercial lawyers doing some insolvency work. And I think things really began to change in the early 90s with the recessions that uh, affected certainly Australasia and also I know it affected Europe and the United States. There were high numbers of insolvencies. When you look at the number of people and businesses becoming insolvent, then compared with, say, the 70s and the early 80s, there's no comparison. I think a big change has been that more firms now work in the field. This is both law and accounting firms. And there's much more interest as far as academics are concerned. I can remember at the beginning of the 90s when I'd started to write in the field, I and probably Rosalind Mason were the only academics in Australia who were working on insolvency issues in a a regular basis. And in the UK, there was probably only Ian Fletcher, David Milman and Harry Rajak who were working. Whereas in the US, there'd been bankruptcy lawyers for some time. And so there were more there. But I don't think anywhere else outside the US, there were a lot of people doing insolvency research. And so that's just changed amazingly now, just by looking at the number of people that you're, you're, you're interviewing for this series. I think the main change has probably been the emphasis on restructuring and rescue. The work of the Court Committee here in the UK and the Harmer Committee in Australia and many other committees in other countries has really made people think more about the idea of rescue. It was really limited to the US before the 80s. And now it's provided for in in many countries, as listeners will know, and far more important and there's far greater enhancement of the rescue culture. Second, and close behind it, is the issue of cross-border insolvency. It was never an issue for, for most lawyers before the 90s. I know there were some big firms that were dealing with transnational insolvencies, but they were few and far between. The model law, development of the model law and the European Union's insolvency regulation, I think, has changed things amazingly in this area. And it's such that gradually people started to recognise the importance of cross-border insolvency. And of course, globalisation has been an important contributory factor to this. And I think that has meant that more and more people have had to sit up and take notice of it. Another change has been really follows on from the last question. I think now there is a greater greater consideration of insolvency and how does it affect people. Another change, I think, has been the, the fact that bankruptcy of individuals no longer attracts the same stigma as it used to. Going bankrupt used to be sort of the end of a person's world, I think, before the 90s. But that's changed now. And people have become bankrupt, probably for sensible reasons. And lastly, I think change is that in research areas now, more and more empirical research is being done. I mean, until perhaps the last 10 years or so, 
you had people like Lynn Lopucky in the US doing empirical research, but but not many. I remember doing some work with Peter Walton at the end of the 90s, and it was sort of the first empirical work we'd done. And now, of course, Peter's with colleagues at Wolverhampton, Chris Umfraville and Lizelle Jacobs did work on CVAs, and also he's done work on on for the uh, Graham report. And I think that's another huge change that, that's, that's occurred. Thank you. I would like to focus a bit more on, on your research. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it could be argued that your research has a common theme, the analysis of directors, their actions, their roles, before and during insolvency procedures. How has your research changed in terms of focus and methodology over these years? As you might expect, with a long as career as I've had, my research and interest has changed uh, over time. I, in my early years, and this probably followed on from my work as a registrar, I worked a lot on issues surrounding the commencement of insolvency proceedings. And then I moved on to look at insolvency investigations, particularly the examination of bankrupts and corporate officers and things like that. And that certainly came out of my work as a registrar. And I actually did my equivalent of an MPhil thesis in that area. And I wanted to explore them more. So those sort of were my early days. And then, then I moved on to looking at issues surrounding voluntary administration, which is the Australian equivalent of administration in the UK. And then I really started working in what I've had a long association with, which is transactional avoidance, which is what I did my PhD on at the University of Queensland. And I've come back to look at that in more recent years, particularly from a European perspective and how the powers of avoidance could be harmonised across the EU. But following that, I worked on preferential creditors, some of it with Peter Walton and Andre Bahrain from South Africa. And then I started to focus on directors' duty to consider the interests of creditors. And I've really continued to work on that off and on for the last 20 years. I followed that with working on wrongful and fraudulent trading, sometimes known as reckless trading. So I've spent a lot of time on particular areas, but while I've been working on those areas, I've done bits and pieces on on other things, such as looking at the new administration, how it was allowed to be instituted in 2002 with the Enterprise Act in, in the UK, how that fitted in with liquidation. and. I've more more recently looked at the fact that now companies might be going into liquidation rather than administration, British Steel, for example, and Carillion and some of these big companies. So I've really tried to to look at a number of areas at the same time rather than perhaps just staying on one area. As far as my method, I, I began as a traditional lawyer, if you like, engaging in traditional doctrinal legal scholarship. That was what I was trained as when I was at law school, and that's how I worked as a practitioner. And I've done a lot of doctrinal work over the years. But as I've gone on, I've embraced other methods because uh, I get bored easily. And also, I felt that I needed to broaden my methodology because I felt that there was more to be said. So I, I started to work using a more theoretical method at the end of the 90s. And since then, I've embraced empirical and comparative methods. 
And I've always found embracing a new method challenging, but interesting. One of the most interesting parts is that in looking at some of these other methods, particularly the theoretical, I've had to get to grips with economic and management concepts such as efficiency and the agency theory and things like that. And that, I think, has been good for me in the sense that it's challenged me. It's also given me a wider audience and also enabled me to to speak at gatherings of economists and um, organisational behavioralists and ethicists and people like that, which is always interesting to do some transdisciplinary conversations. So that's probably been the change of, of embracing these these other methods uh, uh, over the over the last twenty years. Thank you, Andrew. Another question is about developments that occurred at both international level, and I'm referring to the UNCTAD among others, or at the regional level, thinking of the European Union. How have these developments affected the evolution and practice of domestic insolvency laws? I probably think that probably not a lot until the last 10 to 15 years. Now there's, a, as I said earlier, a greater awareness of the international dimension. I mean, we live in a global village, as people have said, and it's true. I mean, we only have to see with things like COVID and ec- economic problems, things like that, that it affects much of the world. And I think that people are appreciating that in the insolvency domain. And I think that all lawyers, whether they be practitioners or academics, now have to be aware of the developments that are occurring internationally and take them into account in their advice and or, or their writing as, as academics. And I think this will continue to occur as the world gets smaller and there's a greater appetite for employing, I think, a more universalist approach. I mean, that's what we saw with the UNCTRA model and the, the, the EU insolvency regulation. And I think countries have, are looking at what those models have provided for, and whilst they don't deal with substantive law yet, I think that they're they're being looked at by by national governments and the people who advise them. And I think that obviously we're going to see a lot more restructuring regimes developing in e- in the EU as the EU insolvency restructuring directive becomes effective, well, it is effective, but actually people take it on board and apply it. So that's going to occur. But we're seeing far more research being done by people where they're actually looking at the international situation. And as I said, I don't think anyone can possibly avoid it. And I think that some of the things that have been used by UNCTRAL and the European Union have basically been a um, embraced by national governments in the development of their insolvency legislation, and I think that will continue to occur. Thank you, Andrew. I'm going to ask you now a question that I think is probably the most difficult question that they can ask you in this interview after the one uh, on the purposes of insolvency law. I actually remember one of the speakers in the series saying that they actually didn't like this question because it was too broad, too indeterminate. But I would like to hear, nevertheless, your views. On, on this topic. What are the major 
changes or trends that you see currently occurring in the economy, social life, politics, or the way the business is done, which will shape the future of insolvency law and insolvency research. Yes, I, I can understand why they <laughs> they said that. It is it is a very broad question, and uh, I, I hope that I can tackle it. Following on from what I said a few moments ago, further developments in cross-border insolvency regimes will occur because the world continues to get smaller, as I said. And there are more international elements in commerce than there ever has been. And I think UNSATRAL will continue to work on further developments to enhance more efficient and effective cross-border insolvency, like, like if you like, model law mark two that they're trying to have countries embrace. And I think that that's particularly in relation to restructuring as well. I think that the, the cross-border developments uh, in restructuring are going to have really important effects because of the, the fact that, as we know, when big companies collapse, that causes all sorts of a problem for not only the national government, but all the people living in the, the area where the company operates and sometimes even further afield. And I often think of the, the, the collapse of MG Rover in this country when it affected not only the people in Birmingham where their factory was, but other people around the country with dealerships and also in about four or five other European countries. I think that's, a, that's, that's certainly cross-border de- cross development will continue to be something which will shape the future for insolvency law and research in the future. I'm sure that the fallout from COVID will continue to cause major changes. In the UK, as in, as in other countries, as you will know, the government passed legislation in order to alleviate problems for businesses by making it more difficult to bring uh, winding up petitions against companies to wind them up and bring actions for wrongful trading against directors. And we're going to see continual fallout from this COVID problem. It is my view that this year and next year we will see huge numbers of insolvencies, certainly in the UK, and I think that will be replicated in other countries around the world. I think that Restructuring is likely to develop further in Europe with the new directive I've referred to. There is going to be more pressure, obviously, to introduce a more, I suppose, wide-ranging restructuring framework in many countries that, that don't have one. I mean, some do already, and they seem to be working quite well. But in other countries, there'll need to be developments. And I think there are probably several candidates to replace the UK as the schemes hub for companies around Europe since Brexit. I think also there's going to be a greater use of asset-backed lending, and I think that can have a marked effect on the insolvencies that will occur and whether there's going to be very much in the way of assets and funds for unsecured creditors. For example, in the UK, I think administration is now being found not to be very suitable for some companies when you think it would be. And I, I mentioned British Steel earlier on where it went into liquidation when you thought it would go into administration because maybe it's not as useful as people thought it was. So I think that that's going to be affected a little bit by what sort of companies do become insolvent 
and whether there are going to be floating charge holders or even fixed charge holders who are willing to underwrite administrations for the future. In British Steel, they weren't willing to do so. So the basically, the government's going to end up pick, picking up the tab. So there are some of the, th- the things that I, I can talk about within a restricted period of time. Thank you. I'm sure that we will mention maybe some of them later on during this interview. But I would like now to move to publication and research strategies. Now, together with Professor Peter Walton, you recently published a monograph titled Corporate Governance and Insolvency, Accountability and Transparency. This book provides a comprehensive analysis of governance issues that exist in relation to the management of insolvent companies. It argues that the two most important features of corporate governance are transparency and accountability. Can you tell us a bit more about the content, significance, and originality of this book? Okay, well, there's been, as you will know, and and most listeners will know, there's been a lot written about the governance of solvent companies, uh, and particularly large ones. And insolvent companies have been neglected. David Millman wrote a book about 10 years ago, which dealt with some of the issues. But apart from that, there hasn't been very much of substance written about the governance of insolvent companies. Now, when they're insolvent, there are two situations that we tackle in the book. The first one is when a company's insolvent, but they're still in the, the hands of the, the directors. And secondly, when they've been placed in some sort of formal insolvency regime, such as liquidation or administration. What we try to do is consider the role of, of creditors, shareholders, the insolvency service, special managers, creditors committees during these periods of insolvencies and how they relate to directors on the one hand before a regime occurs and then on the other hand where office holders take charge of a company such as a liquidator. So we, we try to look at both of those types of issues and what we've tried to do, as you've said in your, in your question, We've argued the, the discussion from the point of looking at them in relation to accountability and transparency based on the, the argument that we take the view that those two virtues are the most important ones when it comes around to looking at corporate governance. And so that is probably the essential originality element that we look at it through those two lenses. And that's how we, we tackle our consideration of the position with directors in control of an, an insolvent company. You know, how do you make sure that there is transparency and accountability there? And also when an insolvency practitioner takes control of a company, what transparency and accountability is there for him or her? And what responsibilities have they got in that respect? So we've tried to look at it through those lenses and try to provide our discussion along those lines. And that's been, if you like, our parameters because the area is huge. We could have written a book twice as long quite easily. But, you know, one wants something that was obviously more readable and also more succinct. And also maybe you wanted to keep some material for the next book, isn't it? <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I don't know whether there will be a next. Well, there's a couple of books I'm going at the moment. I don't know if there will be another book after that. All right. Let me move to the next question. How do you approach 
academic writing? Is there any routine that you follow or sources of or inspiration uh, that you find? Well, I've really developed my own style, I think. I've never had any real guidance. I've really picked it up as I've gone along. I suppose the way I do things has changed rather since the early 90s when I actually got to start using a computer and I've become more computer literate. In my early years, there wasn't the same emphasis on publishing as there is now, and there wasn't the same pressure to write. Uh, then there came in this watchword, publish or perish, and we all went, oh dear, <laughs> we better start writing something. And I've always worked on several projects since that time at the same time. I, I get bored easily, and I like to exercise my mind with different things. And I also firmly believe that distance from a project and working on another one can give the brain time to work on the first one, if you're, with, if you're with me. When you're not really concentrating on it, the brain can do all sorts of great things. Well, you hope it does anyway. So it can, have, it can really help sometimes with when perhaps you get blockage on a project. You think, I'm not sure where I'm going to go with this. Or you think, okay, I've done enough on this. I really need to give some time to just to think about it a bit more. And you start to work on something else. And you go back after a while and you can look at it again with a fresh mind and you can say, okay, that doesn't look too bad. Or sometimes you think, goodness me, what planet was I on when I wrote that? So it can be very helpful for that. I think a big element of, of, of my work is that I am very conscious of management of time. I've always been a good time manager. I've always set myself annual goals, and they've been intended to stretch me, but not to be overly ridiculously ambitious. And what I've done over the years is try to grab whatever time I've been able to during the day. So rather than perhaps restricting my research just to research days, as some universities provide for, I've grabbed an hour between lectures just to do something on my research. Maybe it's to read an article. Maybe it's to read a case. Maybe it's to uh, look at the structure of my paper that I'm working on. And the other thing is I've just worked very long <laughs> weeks and long hours. And it's been much of my life. And I don't recommend it to anybody. And I wouldn't expect anyone to do the same as I've done. My approach was a result of ambition, but it was also due to the fact that uh, it was an attempt to try and provide therapy for me. I've, I've suffered from chronic pain for 30 years, and the research helps me to provide therapy in that respect because it takes my mind off, off that pain and gives me something to think about. So I've, I've, I've done it for those purposes. I keep a folder of ideas, so every time something new occurs to me, whether it's from my writing or when I'm you know, in the shower or in, or in the car or whatever, and I'll per periodically go to that file and have a look at it and maybe cull it, maybe add to it. But I've always got something that I could work on to launch into, so I didn't have to sort of sit down and think, what am I going to do next? There was always plenty of things there, and there's been too many, in fact. And I've usually tried to go through that list and follow it unless something has come up which is highly contemporary or perhaps controversial, which I think I should deal with straight, straight away. I've also 
take alerters. I go, I have an Alexis and Westlaw alerters every day. I get alerters from them, which is really helpful to show me new cases, uh, new articles, new government reports, new inquiries or whatever. Also, SSRN, with, which most readers are probably familiar with, Social Science Research Network, that's been really good, particularly to find material from non-law writers. And I've just, I just gather in as much material as I can and I read a lot new cases, new articles, whether they be from practitioners or academics. And signing up to SSRM was a really good decision. I recommend everybody should do that. And they give you alerts with new papers that have been written all across the world. And that's the great thing about it. One could be reading something from Namibia one day, Saudi Arabia another day, and another day something from Mexico. So it's really very, very, very good in that respect. I've got a very methodical filing system. It used to be totally paper-based, but since COVID, I've sort of arrived in the 21st century and I've got a more digital uh, system now. So I've always got material that I can go to to maybe get me a head start on a project or give me an introduction to it and that will lead on to some other material that's available to me. So what I'll do is I'll begin with a question, an issue or a problem or something that needs to be explained that I've, I've come across. And obviously, as you'd expect, I'm looking for something that is really original, something that's not been resolved, something that someone hasn't written on before, if possible. And the project might be a book, or it may be just one article, or it may be I can see several articles coming out of it that might be linked in some way. And I might even think at that stage when I'm, I'm thinking about what I'm actually going to work on the project itself, where I may send it if it's a paper, which journal I may, or a couple of journals I'll have in mind. So that that may help me as I prepare the work. I'll then consider what methods I'm going to use. Is it going to be a doctrinal piece, a theoretical piece? Do I need to do some empirical work because I need to find whether something's effective or what's happening in a particular area. And then I like to try and draft a very tentative outline of the paper or papers. Sort of helps me start thinking through the issues. And I like to start writing in a very tentative way, but early on for two reasons. First, it encourages me <laughs> to feel that I'm doing something. And second, I've always held the view, if you can't articulate it in writing, then it may be you don't understand it or it's flawed in some way. And when I've got a piece to the point where I think it's finished, I'll put it aside for two to four weeks before going back to it to read it again fresh to make sure that it makes sense and I haven't missed something or I've included something that's irrelevant and should go, and basically to refine it then obviously looking to send it off to a publisher. So that's generally how, how I work. I'm not surprised that uh, you work hard, considering, as I mentioned at the very beginning, the number of publications and the number of achievements that you got in, uh, in your career. The people reap what they sow. You work hard. You have evidence of your hard work. I would like to move questions for our early career researchers. First, I would like to ask you, do you have specific advice 
for early career researchers in terms of mistakes that they should avoid, opportunities um, that they should take. Yeah, I've, I've got a real, you know, a real concern um, and interest in early career researchers having uh, supervised many, many PhD students. And I think that the world in which we're in is not easy. That's not to say one shouldn't be an academic, but it's not easy. Okay, some of the things, maybe mistakes or things I, I, I would avoid. Don't publish really good stuff in lower ranked journals as you're wasting research. Sometimes I see in journals which haven't got the same, you know, well, let's face it, journals are regarded at different levels. And I've seen some really good papers in journals where I say, well, why didn't they develop it a little bit more and gone for another journal? So that's one thing. Another is don't try to cram too much into one paper. Maybe there's enough there to write a second paper or even a third paper, particularly given the limits on length that we have, particularly in the UK. It's a bit different with the US papers. They're able to write, you're able to write longer papers in the US, but certainly UK and Europe, there are limitations. And the same goes for, certainly from my experience in, in Canadian journals and Australian and New Zealand journals. So don't cram it into too much into one paper. I would say, and this might be controversial, and some people disagree with me, don't agree to do many book chapters. The reason I say that is, first of all, books that, are, that contain multiple authors are often of variable quality. The second thing is they're not really peer-reviewed. Thirdly, they get lost often. People don't know about them. And people are not going to go out and buy a book necessarily or can't afford to buy a book, but they can get hold of a paper from a journal because their university subscribes to it. Don't procrastinate with respect to the material you've worked on. Make sure it's as good as it can be, obviously. It's quality, but don't sit on it for ages. You have to submit it sometime. Bite the bullet, send it off. Obviously, other things such as if you're doing empirical, empirical work, don't be tempted to manufacture data. I'm sure people wouldn't, but don't, don't even be tempted to. And if you're in a team and people are doing something that you feel is not appropriate, then, then obviously make sure that you voice your concerns. We as academics should be people of integrity, and that's what we should be aiming for. It's great to work with so many people who have high standards, both from the quality of work, but also from from virtues. Don't get too dispirited when you get a rejection letter from a journal. It happens to us all. You find me an academic who says that they've never had a rejection letter and I'll sell you, find you a liar because everybody gets one at some stage in their career. Try not to spread yourself too thin with doing too much, particularly in the university that you work in. Some management roles, for example, can be extremely demanding. So I would advise you not to take on any management roles if you can avoid it for the first two to three years of your career and go into management roles slowly. Take on one that doesn't take too much time up before you start to get director of teaching and learning or things like that, the really heavy stuff. Don't take on more than one external examinership in the early days because that's not going to advance your career too much. They can be very useful. They can be good for contacts. And I would advocate that uh, you spend some time of your research working with others in a team, if you can, or at least collaborating with somebody else. 
that can be really very helpful because you can learn from others. Two minds are better than one very often. You can bounce ideas off somebody and you don't feel as if you're impinging on their time as you might if if you go to somebody outside of the research because they're actually working with you on it. It's just great to be able to brainstorm with somebody who's working with you on a project. And I've had the good fortune to work with both practitioners and academics on projects, and they've been really very good for me. I've learned something on just about everyone I've been. What you have to just be very careful about is selecting who you work with. Make sure that you think they've got the same work patterns and ethos that you've got, or you get, or you become really frustrated. I could never work with anybody who was really low-key and who didn't keep to deadlines because I am a deadline person. Get people to read your draft articles. Ask members of your faculty to do so if they will. And if you've been through a PhD process and you've got got on well with your supervisors, keep in touch with them. They can be very, very good sources of advice for the future. Try and have somebody in your university uh, act as a mentor with whom you can talk and seek advice. You know, many people like to do it, senior people. I love being, being able to do it. I've really enjoyed it. I've had some great friendships as a result of doing that. And I've got some, you know, people I, I have great interest in in their careers because I've mentored them. But if you don't have a mentor, try and seek advice from more experienced academics wherever you can. And when you're presented with an opportunity, maybe ask them, what do you think about this? Do you think it's worth doing? Or should I just pass on this and do something else? How good will it be for my career, do you think? So you've got to be careful on what, what obviously you take on. So getting advice can be very helpful in that, in that way. So I would say try and be as focused you can on your research in the early years. Don't try and take on too much. That would be one of the most important things. Thank you, Andrew. I think that you acted as a, a mentor for many of those people who will be listening to this interview with uh, precious advice that, that you gave us. While you were uh, enumerating all the uh, all these things, I was thinking in my mind, uh, yes, I've done it right. No, I haven't done it properly right. So thanks so much for, for this type of advice. Uh, speaking again of our advice to early career researcher, it's becoming increasingly important to have a clear funding strategy for researchers in the academia. What can you tell us in terms of advice, things that people should do, should not do? Should they aim big? Should they start small? What, are, what is your advice? I mean, uh, until 2005, I, I didn't do any, any funded research at all because until then, you only got funding for basically expenses. So unless you were doing any empirical work, which required traveling, you, you couldn't. But since then, in the UK, and I know other jurisdictions like Australia, you can now get funding for, for, for working on something, the time you spend on it, which is great, because most of us, what we need is time to do the work we, we, we need to do. And funding bodies now in the UK, for example, will pay you uh, it's usually 80% of your salary to work on a particular project. And the great thing about it, it seems to me is that the funding bodies will fund various types of 
research, whether it be doctrinal, theoretical, comparative, historical, empirical. The problem is it's tough to get, as you know, and I'm sure most listeners will know. I think the AHRC funding is about 18% success rate. ESRC, I think, is even lower than that. But as far as do it, what, what to do, I'm probably not the best person to ask, but I think that obviously you've got to start somewhere. And I think there's two strings that one can have to one's bow. First of all, there are particular funds one can go for as early career researchers. They're designed for early, early career researchers. So I would do that. I would look at those and go for something there. As a second limb to my strategy, what I would do is to try and get into a team or with somebody more experienced who will apply for a grant. And you can learn a lot from working in a team. Recently, I had a, an AHRC grant with, with colleagues from Leeds and Liverpool, and we had a particular uh, early career researcher on that particular project. And you know, he said that he learned an awful lot just from being in our meetings as we looked at the strategy for getting our research done and for the writing of the, of the papers. So that enables you to get the benefit of maybe somebody who's experienced and also the, the benefit of being uh, with somebody when and if they get the, the grant itself. So that's the way I'd go for a two-pronged attack, one for oneself as an early career researcher and then one with perhaps uh, a more experienced researcher and possibly even a, a team of researchers. Thanks, Andrew. So we're now at the end of the interview. Before concluding, I would like to ask you two questions that were not disclosed with you. So the first question is, how has a failure or apparent failure set you up for later success? And do you have anything like a favorite favor or failure of yours? Yeah. Um, when I came back into academia from being a, a registrar of the federal court, I, as I said to you earlier, I really started to, this is when I started to do my research. I really got into research then. Uh, I went back into academia. I went to a university in Queensland. I won't say which. And after uh, two years there, I applied to become a senior lecturer. And I was basically rejected. And after I got over the initial disappointment and uh, having a little bit of retail therapy, I think that set me up really for the rest of my career because it made me more determined. First of all, I thought it was unfair and my referees thought it was unfair, but still, I realized that life is not always just. And I was going to have to work very hard because I realized my weaknesses. And I was going to have to work very hard to get what I wanted in academic life. And it really pushed me on to work even harder once I got over the initial disappointment. I think that really I always go back to that as the point where I just realized I wanted to be an academic. I wanted to make a success of it. And I just had to work very hard on it. And so that when I applied next time and the next year I did and I got it, I wouldn't get that feeling again. 
And I suppose it also helps me a little bit when I have received the rejection letter from a publisher to say, sorry, we don't want this article, to sort of say, okay, push harder and harder and it won't, they won't reject me next time. So I think that that's, that's, what that is, that's what that's done for me, I suppose. That's exactly the right attitude, if I may add. We have seen how far you have gone since that first rejection in the position of senior lecturer. Now, my final question, what is the book or the books that you have given most as a gift and why? And uh, what, alternatively, what are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? Ooh. Well, I must say I'm not really a book giver. I've basically given books when I know people want the book, particularly my children. They've asked for a particular book. So I, ha- I haven't, as some people do sometimes, say, well, this has been a really good book and they've given it to somebody. I suppose from a professional point of view, I thought that a book by Margaret Blair, an American academic, on ownership and control, really did have a tremendous effect on me as far as corporate governance research went. It was a very good book. I really enjoyed it, and I found it very helpful. As far as a personal life goes, there was a book I read when I was 14 called A Kind of Loving, and it really made me very aware of the the difficulties the relationships can have. And I think that the fact that the... I suppose he wasn't the hero, the protagonist, I suppose, had a real struggle with his life because of some of the relationships really perhaps made a big impact on me in my um, late teens and early 20s. And also, I suppose that definitely that as far as the book goes, the Bible has had an impact on me by the things I've read in it. And that has really challenged me with um, how I've lived my life and dealing with people. Thank you, Andrew. Fascinating answer as as usual. Well, I don't have any further questions for you today, but I thank you greatly for being here and for having shared a bit of knowledge with us. Thanks so much. Thank you, Eugenia, for asking me. And I hope it wasn't a coincidence that this was done on April Fool's Day. If you have enjoyed this podcast, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast provider so you don't miss an episode. Contact us on LinkedIn and Twitter at Insol International using the hashtag InsolTalks. The information provided is intended for a general audience and reflects the personal views of the participants. This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. Thank you for listening.